0: Listeners, welcome to another episode of Where Credits Do. I'm your host, Yulia Tutina, senior reporter at Tearsheet. I hope everyone is doing well and relaxing this August, staying cool during this intense weather. I'm hoping we're all going to charge our batteries, because September is just around the corner, and we're bringing some new exciting events on your calendar. We are holding Tearsheet's Power of Payments conference on September 15th at current Chelsea Piers in New York City. A day full of critical insights and discussions, as well as in-person networking opportunities. This conference is primarily designed for senior management of financial institutions, fintechs, investors and consultants. However, there's also limited space for other key stakeholders. So if you want to be among those special few decision makers, head over to apply for tickets on our website and I'll also provide you with a link in the podcast episode description. Turning to our episode today, we are talking about fraud and financial services. With consumers continuing to take a digital-first approach to everything from shopping to dating and investing, fraudsters are finding new and innovative ways to commit fraud. Traditionally, when a person will walk into a bank branch to open an account, they would need multiple forms of identification. But online, consumer onboarding has turned into a riskier process for banks and consumer fintechs with fraudsters trying to take advantage of their systems. There's many different types of fraud, with ID theft and synthetic fraud being the most common. Synthetic fraud is a name, date of birth and social security number that doesn't belong to the same single real person. While ID theft is easier to do, synthetic fraud is more prevalent and harder to catch. Reducing the stress of fraud allows for a more streamlined application process, making it easier for consumers to get approved for a loan or a bank account. This aspect also has implications for groups of consumers that previously had a hard time accessing credit or other types of financial products and services, as banks can verify the applicant in a way they weren't able to before. I talk about all of this today with my guests, Kimberly Sutherland, Vice President of Fraud and Identity Strategy at LexisNexis Risk Solutions, and John Buzzard, Lead Analyst of Fraud and Security at Javelin Strategy and Research. Hi, everyone. Hello. Good morning. I'd like to start with you, John, if you could give me a little bit of an overview of uh, what type of fraud are we seeing uh, happening most commonly in financial services and why that's happening?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. We certainly have seen consistently for years now and with fluctuations back and forth with regards to the type account-based fraud, absolutely, and a wide variety of automated attacks that seem to be persistently growing. And those automated attacks are certainly designed to circumvent and break through the account holder authentication process. So it's weaponizing information that sometimes is just out there readily available uh, in order to sort of penetrate through financial service authentication practices. So it is a huge problem. And as account uh, fraud of all types kind of continues, it's sort of that marriage of how do we keep the bad guys out um, while still enabling the consumer to have a reasonable customer experience without provocation. So there are a lot of challenges.
0: Wonderful. What do you think, Kim? I
2: completely agree. Um, The Areas that financial institutions continue to address is across that entire customer journey um, beginning at new account opening. And new new account opening fraud continues to be the challenge with supplying incorrect information, um, trying to use a a synthetic identity, um, or or trying to manipulate the entire process to make um, it easier to commit more fraud attacks and to build trust with a financial institution. Um, the shift to digital has been um, an ongoing process for many years. Now we're seeing digital transactions using mobile devices at its highest rate since most users now have a smartphone um, and it becomes their preferred way to interact. Um, but financial institutions are also challenged because Um, They have to fortify every way in which a customer may choose to interact with them.
1: That's a good point, Ken. I've totally, I mean, I guess I've mentally blocked it because it's so bad. But when you brought up synthetic fraud, I just sat here and thought, oh, what a huge chunk of woe that everybody's dealing with. That's a good point.
0: So speaking of these, uh, would you be able to give us a little bit of a definition of what synthetic fraud is just for our listeners, uh, synthetic fraud, account takeover fraud, and you know, also perhaps the differences? Because there's a difference of the type of fraud that happens on the consumer side and also on the commercial side. So uh, John, could you give us a little bit of an overview?
1: I'm sure I'd be happy to. Um, and again, um, maybe Kim will fill in the blanks with uh, everybody defines things so differently that it'll be helpful if we sort of share the, the definition here. When I look at an account takeover scenario, in my mind, what I'm seeing is, a, you know, a criminal entity using information that they've obtained in such a way, either directly from the consumer or from the dark web or wherever their sources are, that allow them to literally go into the financial based account. Let's just deal in the financial. Um, Change things that are significant that literally cuts off the consumer from contact with their own account. So today everyone is mobile. We have phone numbers that are generally cell phone numbers associated with our accounts. And we are frequently and comfortably accustomed to getting notices and alerts and pop ups and things that are constructive from our financial institution. When the criminal is taking over an account, one of the first things that they want to do is get into that account and materially change the email and the phone numbers to something that they control. So while I'm here busy working at my desk all day, if they can just do that much, then I'm not going to receive any alerts or anything as a follow up as an example for like an account takeover scenario. Um, And I'll just say here that for Javelin, with the research that we do in the last year, we saw a 90% increase in account takeover fraud. So that was about $11 billion. And then I'd like to define new account fraud simply as that. It's pretty self-explanatory, but it's when criminals are using information to establish new accounts, um, where we saw a 109% increase. So every year, it's a little bit different. But this was a roughly almost a $7 billion problem just in the last research year. Um, so it's a, a big issue, certainly. And then Kim, I wondered if you would sort of like define synthetic, I think you might do a better job than I would on that one.
2: Absolutely. So when I think of any of the definitions with fraud, um, I think of a, the the most simplistic as possible. So, synthetic identity fraud is about taking data that doesn't, it's not intended to belong together and <clears throat> to be able to create an identity. So, it can be all fictitious information or it can be bits of real data mixed with data that doesn't belong to the same identity to kind of merge it together. Um, but ultimately, it does not align with a real user and it makes it very difficult to detect because um, no one, uh, the actual user itself is not uh, being impacted by it because that that person doesn't even exist. Um, And I I wanted to go back also to the concept of account takeover fraud. Um, I like to simply think of it of when any unauthorized party is gaining access to an account. And the reason why I I think of it in that manner versus just criminal is because often it's people that you even know. And it's hard to point them out as criminals sometimes when it is a uh, adult child, unauthorized access to an account of a senior uh, parent, or if it is a child using their parents' um, credit card to be able to make more online purchases. And it didn't seem like it was that big of a problem. But either way, those are unauthorized parties gaining access to an account and that is fraud.
1: And the uh, I wanna just mention too, if I may, that uh, for people who really want sort of uh, a deeper understanding the Federal Reserve has done just a marvelous job of uh, categorizing fraud types and Absolutely. defining synthetic identity as well. And there's a really great online toolkit out there for people. So, when you have five minutes, if you're interested in those topics, it's just really great. There's some videos and lots of things out there. So, just wanted to throw that out there.
2: And it's called the fraud classifier. Yeah,
0: you're awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and it's so interesting, you know, walking this line between, as you mentioned earlier, John. Um, you know, the customer experience and having to go through all these filters so we avoid any kind of uh, negative outcome throughout any like financial experience or interaction. So uh, here talking about account takeover, um, and I guess that's type of identity fraud, right? am I Am I right about that? Okay. And uh, so here, uh, what's what's this uh, balance like? How do you see striking the right balance between having a good customer experience because everybody's focused on that nowadays. Everybody wants you know quick and easy and no friction and um, you know making the process as smooth as possible so people can interact with the apps and with their mobile devices and online, uh, but at the same time taking those steps to make sure that there's no fraudulent activity happening. So how do you see that balance?
2: So I'll give a a start with this. Um, There's definitely an ongoing shift that's been occurring around trying to give that best user experience. And like you said, lightning fast, convenient, intuitive, um, even customized, um, while respecting the privacy of the user and maintaining the most secure environment for the user. And I I think it feels often like competing goals for many institutions as they try to balance those business processes that they have. and so being able to make decisions with the least amount of information that businesses have ever asked for, right? So, so you can open up some aspects of an account or add a user with just a name and an email address to get started, for example. Um, now, they're they're having to deal with um, financial institutions. They're having to deal with the compliance side of things. But they really want to balance that user experience. And it all kind of centers, again, around the mobile device often now um as, as we see uh, digital banking scenarios and being able to try to uh, open that account completely remotely um taking taking effect. So I think that the biggest thing that companies are using are trying to do is uh, more passive um, ways to detect fraud, um, ways to recognize the device more, um, even things like behavioral biometrics to be able to see how, and individuals interacting with the device and help them identify if it's a human or a bot. Um, Bot attacks are extremely challenging in um, account takeover events. And and we're seeing the the need to try to protect that experience that the customers, the, the businesses want to have while trying to weed out the
0: bad actors. John, what do you think?
1: Well, I completely agree with the points that Kim has made. It's really, and I think everybody visually can almost think of this process as like two layers. Layer one is sort of like what the customer sees and experiences. And a lot of times just, you know, sheer ubiquitousness of a password, that customer may be coming into our digital space by using a username and a password. They may hopefully interact with a one time. Uh, passcode type verification of some sort Um, in this age where it's so difficult to just, you know, ascertain who's coming into us, but it's that vast array of contextual information that should be layer two, just as Kim said. Biometrics for behavioral and in device profiling. There are great vendors out there that can tell you things about the global trust of that entity that's coming to you. So I, I just call those sort of like you know supercharged tools that should be used that make millisecond decisions, help you you know empower um, and push the the good. Good guys forward and hold the questionable ones in the background. And then the other part that I always think about is for people who are making purchase decisions decisions out there around this exact conversation, step up authentication should be flexible so that you can deploy it anytime you want, anywhere you want to your enterprise. So when people are vetting products out there, I think one of the challenges is are we getting the most functionality um, with our step up? Because there could be a moment where a criminal comes into your digital space through your app or a browser and they're behaving adequately um, and sort of in tandem to the way that the um, existing consumer can behave. And then five minutes into this session, things start to go downhill. And if you had biometrics um, that you could lean on that would say, hey, This is a completely different sort of session than what we have with the genuine customer. Wonderful. You've identified a problem, but you should be able to also pop up and say, let's apply some more step-up authentication from end to end. That whole session, I think, is really important. And then I just want to bring this up because I think whether we go into detail on this or not, part of the problem, um, things are moving very quickly there are innovations that just seem to sort of pop up and they leapfrog over things that folks are still working on. You know, I bet there's probably a few people out there that have just felt like they closed the books on their EMV transition. And now we start to see, you know, the MasterCard roadmap for eliminating MagStripe cards, etc. So I just want to remind everybody, you know, this journey that we're all on, we have to remember to keep the consumer kind of educated and prompted to safer ways to pay also. So it's not just when they come and visit us, but when they're out in the world, make sure they understand and get really comfortable with tap and go and digital wallets because when that Mac Stripe disappears in a few years in the US, we want to kind of have everybody super comfortable with those ways to pay and understand that it's not just convenient, but it's encrypted and really safe. And I think it's why not start now you know and educate gently uh, rather than having to like go through a huge effort all at once
2: and john you really touched on an important thing around consumer education as it relates to fraud um one of the biggest challenges the financial institutions are running into right now has to do with scams um and you know scams we saw scam attacks being one of the largest concerns in Europe for many years um it seemed to be somewhat um, less of a concern in the U.S., um, but that is no longer true. (laughs) Um, It is something that is pervasive globally. And because um, I think often users of digital, uh, of devices um, and and, and digital transactions start to think that they're really savvy about it, they often miss the fact that um, fraudsters are taking advantage of, Sometimes the limited education is people quickly shifted to digital and didn't learn all of the security aspects of things. And trust is hard there, right? So um, trying to educate consumers on on scam um, activity is is a very hard thing for financial institutions, but they are equally responsible in learning and, and, and helping to try to help prevent that process as well as the financial institution is. Um, I know that there's going to be some interesting legislation that will be coming out in the future around this, but um, just the whole idea of making um, customers understand the importance of using um, uh, authentication factors, um, not feeling as if it is being too invasive at times um, in order to protect their account um, is all really an important thing for Uh, financial institutions
1: to think about? Yeah, It's a costly, I mean, we just in this most recent identity fraud report from Javelin that I wrote, you know, $28 billion in uh, identity fraud that just originated from scam methodology. So, you know, and of course, if you think about it as the ultimate Trojan horse, Kim, why not go to a consumer? they don't have firewalls and high tech tools they have themselves in a busy day in a stressful family environment and when they receive a text or something that says your electric is your electric bill is unpaid and we're going to turn your electric off if you don't give us your payment information that anxious moment results and adds up to this sort of like 28 billion dollar you know evolving problem so well said
2: that's right, yeah, I mean the thought the thought in the past had been you know things like romance scams, but you know where fraudsters are really attacking scam activity the most is the concern about account takeover. so going back to the n- initial conversation we started with account takeover so letting someone know that their account has been compromised when it's actually the fraudster as the individual that is giving that notice and then causing the um the the legitimate user to overreact and make a change that is really detrimental to them is a big concern because ultimately the user is trying to do the right thing, but they're being manipulated in the process. So more education around detecting scams and not feeling as if you have to always respond in such a quick manner is um, something that really can save businesses a lot of money. And we produce a true cost of fraud report every year. And what we see in that report is that for every dollar of fraud, it actually costs an organization $4 Um, when you think of all of the additional things that have to happen to try to either prevent or address the fraud that has occurred. So it is such an important thing to try to get the consumer involved in the process as well.
0: That's really interesting, and I'm really glad you brought the uh, educational component to the conversation. And um, just exploring this uh, this responsibility, it's not necessarily a clear cut. You know, I'm also thinking here about regulation and what um, legislation could protect consumers more. If there's anything around that that maybe any of you would like to touch upon, and also here I'm thinking of. If, there, if you see any differences in approaches between the digital-only banking services and more like established financial institutions, like the incumbent system. Um, so what what's your take on this?
1: Well, I'll just approach it from an opinion rather than a fact perspective, since I'm not – In possession of a lot of the facts. Here's my reservation I worry about domain expertise inside of new ventures. Um, They may feel very confident, and there's always like a senior advisor or someone in the background of some of these fintech startups and et cetera. But, you know, sometimes, you know, the consumer, by example, when they have a fraud resolution problem, they may find themselves in that particular sector interacting with like a a service bot about sensitive issues um, when they need sort of like the expansiveness of like a full service or sometimes physical location. So I do worry a little bit about domain expertise. And I also worry about the fact that artificial intelligence powered bots are just growing. And, And what I mean by that is the bot could pretend to be me as a consumer it could pretend to be Kim as a bank. And it's like that volatile, you know, sort of match to a fire that can be created because people can't recall if they were speaking to a live individual or not. Um, So again, just back to that concept of, are the upstarts more vulnerable? I just, I do worry about domain expertise and I'm sure Kim has some opinions there too.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, that that's an interesting angle. For me, I'm, I'm just thinking about the sheer... Nature that traditional financial institutions typically have still a brick and mortar, right? You still can go into your physical banking environment. They have websites, they have mobile apps, um, they have call centers. Um, typically, fintechs and neo neo banks, um, uh, virtual banks, sometimes have less fewer channels to have to even be concerned about. So omni-channel. Fraud detection and fraud prevention is something that traditional banking environments care so much about, and they see that fraud shift from uh, wherever it is not being fortified. Um, So, so many financial institutions right now are really trying to go back to protecting their bank bank branches. Um, and and you know we we talk so much about the digital side of things when we, when we think of uh fraud detection. And so I think that that's another just really important thing to think about the more complex um nature that uh traditional financial institutions have just based off of their footprint.
0: Thank you so much. Um I'm also thinking here I would like to end on perhaps um a little bit of a solution angle so maybe some steps or what kind of tools financial institutions have currently to step up uh, on the on the fraud side of things also considering the future of financial services which is increasingly digital we have new generations coming in and wanting to do everything mobile so how do you see how do you think see like the future of financial services uh and like the fraud scene so I'll I'll start. Um,
2: one thing that we see in um, all of our our research um, and experience with uh, organizations that we serve is that a multi-layered approach to fraud um, prevention is the most effective. It takes that cost of fraud down. It is a much more effective way to detect and prevent fraud. But looking at the device and the digital aspects of things um, is the first uh, layer looking at the data that is being shared um, and the location that the transaction is coming from. Um, all of those uh, are, are, are equally important in a different layer, and then even thinking about like the authentication capabilities. Often, organizations tend to jump straight to authentication without making sure that they've addressed the risk signals that were present in the layers above. Um, so, being able to just really kind of uh, understanding that every layer is important, um, and that the um, being able to uh, penetrate uh, a one of those layers. The fraudster trying to find where that weakest vulnerability uh, it is. So, we, starting with multi layered um, fraud detection and prevention is uh, a key aspect and makes a significant difference.
1: I think I would add to that um, one of the things that we deal with a great deal, and we have a lot of conversations at Javelin around just sketching out what the digital environment looks like for each organization. So I'm just going to say that one of my tips, shall we say, is make sure that you really are securing every entry point. And this means that someone needs to sit down and kind of create a journey map that I would just call a current state and then identify from where you are today what the future state needs to be, where those weaknesses are. And sometimes it means that your organization is either ignoring data that's inside the four walls, or you need to acquire data and partnerships that help you make really strong decisions. So we know that, gosh, everything is, is costly. And I would say spendy, but you have to plan out, you know, where you wanna be over a, You know, right now in this business, short term is about 18 months and long term is maybe 24. You know, that's kind of where we are now used to be what Kim, maybe five years and 10 years would be the short and the long term. It's just we don't have that luxury of waiting around right now, but take a good introspective look at your organization and figure out where the weaknesses are. And some of that, of course, is you're going to have to take clues from where your current fraud. situations are evolving and and fix those. But yeah, digital, um, it's only growing. It's definitely not going to dissipate.
2: And in this, you know, current cyber threat, cyber crime threat environment that we have right now, um, you know, we, I think it's really important that um, all organizations are thinking about their customers in a much more holistic viewpoint, that they're looking at the physical and digital attributes, um, and when we think about those digital attributes, collecting an email address is one thing. Verifying that there is no, um, the email address could be associated with that individual, or that there's not risk factors, is another. You know, a, another thing that comes sometimes isn't isn't um, taken advantage of. So, if we're really trying to improve the overall customer experience, which is a key area for most organizations. Um, The more risk signals that you can ingest that have the least um, impact on the actual consumer, the better uh, they're going to be set up to be able to protect the the business.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for um, all those insights. It was a very interesting conversation, and I certainly learned a lot about fraud. Um, So thank you so much for joining me today on this episode.
1: It was great. Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks everyone. Have a great day. This was Kimberly Sutherland, Vice President of Fraud and Identity Strategy at LexisNexis Risk Solutions, and John Buzzard, lead analyst of fraud and security at Jeffelin Strategy and Research. To read the transcript of our conversation, head over to Tearsheet.co and make sure you subscribe to Where Credits Do wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be out with a new episode every two weeks, bringing you conversations with industry leaders to the ever-changing lending landscape. And if you're interested in more content, you can subscribe to our lending newsletter and briefing in your inbox every other week. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you at the next one.